you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, welcome everyone. It's so good to see all of you who are here with us in person. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online and just acknowledge that whether you're watching live in person, live online, or watching or listening throughout the week, uh, know that you are prayed for, cared for, and loved before you showed up today or before you turned on your screen. And just acknowledge that we are so excited to be able to dive into God's word together as we see what it is that he has for us this morning. Now, if you were here with us last week, uh, we started a brand new series, as Michelle mentioned, on the video uh, called A Generous Life. And what we wanted to unpack, or at least to start to um, unpack this idea that generosity is not simply or only pertaining to finances. That when we talked about a blessed life last week, we talked about how a blessed life is not just something where, oh, we've been blessed financially, but it's recognized that everything we've been given by God, what he's given to us is his gift to us, but how we use that blessing is our gift back to him. What does it look like for us to acknowledge? Yes, there is some financial aspect to that, but there's also our time. There's also our talents. There's also our abilities to serve. There are these other ways in which we can live a generous life that is not so myopic or so narrowly focused on just financial um, interactions there. And so what we want to do is continue through that sermon. We talked about how we will talk about money at some point during this service, but that's not today. Today, we're going to talk about what it's like to have a serving life. What does it look like for us to serve? And how does that impact how we live? How does that impact who we interact with? And how does that impact our life here and our life eternal? And so what I want to start off with is that um, I had the opportunity, some of you know a little bit about my story with going to India, some of you don't, but in 2005, um, I went on a missions trip through Azusa Pacific University. It was me and six other uh, people, so there were seven of us that went during May, which we found out, I found out later that uh, May is like the worst month to travel there. And so it was about 115 degrees um, with 100% humidity. In other words, when you took a shower and you were wet, and think how wet you are in the shower, you dry off, you walk outside, like, oh, I showered again. Like, you're just, it's just soaking wet, and it was just, it was just hot, and it was, you know, it was a thing. And so we were able to um, enjoy that month, be able to serve in Calcutta for a little over a week. We went to Bangalore in order to visit one of the team members. He was from India. He was in the um, specific orphanage in Bangalore, so we got to go to where he came from and to meet one of the um, volunteers who remembered him from back when he was about 20 years prior. And then we went to a rural area um, in the region of Canada. So we had these different um, experiences, different culture experiences in India over uh, the span of a month. Now, what I'm about to, uh, to share is to give some context to what it is. So I have this picture of Kolkata, and so this is uh, where we spent the majority, or the first part of our trip. There was 15 million people inside the city of Kolkata. So it's, it's huge, densely populated. However, one of the dynamics that I experienced when I was there is that whereas when we think about going to a big city, the majority of life happens inside the buildings, and there's some people who are out, you know, walking and going about their day, and, and you'll see people, but when we were in Calcutta, 
everyone, life was happening outside on the streets. So you'd see buying and selling. You would see um, people like begging. You'd see some people bathing. You'd see some people, um, you know, just doing whatever needs to be done. And it was just this dynamic of life happened in the streets, but the buildings were empty. Whereas so often we see that buildings are filled here in our culture, and then the street is, there's still some people out there, but it's not nearly as pervasive. So when you're walking through on Chowringi Street in Kolkata, you are surrounded by people, and you see them everywhere. And it's, a, it's an important dynamic for us to unpack, because what we were doing there is we had the opportunity for that first leg of the trip in Kolkata to be able to serve with the missionaries of charity. And so this is a picture of me with one of the sisters there. And so you will recognize the fact that these are the sisters, missionaries of charities, the organization that Mother Teresa started, the one where she felt the call of the Lord decades earlier to go serve the poorest of the poor. And so she landed or she, she spent her life serving people in Calcutta. Now, some of you may wonder why Calcutta or maybe what was it specifically that was the call there. And one of the things that's important for us to be aware of, to see the power and the impact of the missionaries of charity and the love of God that came through them, is the fact that in the Hindu system, the Hindu belief system, there's a caste system. And within this caste system, there are five different castes. This is real brief, but it's important for the context. The top caste was like the priestly caste. Or, or, or the Brahmins. The second one was the warrior caste. The third one would have been the merchants. The fourth one would have been like laborers. And then the fifth one, the bottom one, was what was called the untouchables. And they were called that because they were deemed so low and with such little value that if you were to touch them, you would be considered defiled. Or that you would be considered, like you, you could not touch them. And so here's what happens. The, the, how do they get into these different castes? Well, do you buy your way in? What is, is it like America where you can work hard enough to be able to get enough to be able to move up in the caste system? No. The caste system in India was, it was created, or, or the idea behind it is that because in Hinduism there's the belief of reincarnation, the idea is that whatever caste you were born into reflected how you lived in your previous life. So if you were in the middle class, if you were in that merchant class, the idea would be, well, you, you're not the poorest of the poor and you're not a laborer, but, but you're not, you'd be looked down upon of the castes that were above you. Same thing, if you were in the untouchable caste, if you were in that bottom caste, the idea was that you must have lived such horrible lives in your previous incarnations that you kept moving down the ladder. So people within that belief system would look and see untouchables and would, in their mind, rightfully scorn them, rightfully deem them untouchable, rightly not care whether or not they lived or died. And so this is the context in which we are coming into the culture. And so what Mother Teresa did when she was called to serve the, the poorest of the poor is that she went to a place and she cared for that lowest caste within the Hindu caste system in Calcutta. He, they, she went and served the untouchables. These were the poorest of the poor. They begged. They were not able to get any work. They were not able to do anything. They couldn't touch anyone. They, couldn't. they were the least of these. And they were literally people who you would not touch. So what were some of the things that we would do when we were there? 
Our first day, we went to Kaliga, which was an old Hindu temple that had been transformed to be a home for the house or a house for those who were dying. And so there you'd walk in and there'd be cots in this area in the men's wing. And then you'd walk in another room and there were cots um, side by side in the women's wing. And then you would go upstairs and that's where the laundry was done. But what you would do is you would go and you would sit by the bedside of someone who was on their deathbed. You couldn't verbalize. You couldn't, you couldn't say, well, do you know anything about Jesus? You couldn't, with your mouth, explain the power of the gospel. You know what you could do? We would get a little bit of oil, and we would just massage their arms. Because this was a people group that had grown up feeling like they could never be touched. So we could touch them with the love of God. We could share with them that they have value. And instead of dying outside on the streets with no one to care for them, what Mother Teresa did and the, uh, the missionaries of charity, what they do is they bring people off of the streets into a building where they can be cared for. They can be prayed for. They can be loved. You can come alongside them and just show them that love of God. So we had the honor of being able to be a part of this um, for a little bit of time. And what it helps us to realize is that we are called to be people who serve and put others' needs above our own. We are called as Christ followers to live and serve and work in such a way that it points to what Jesus has done in our lives. And so as we're going to unpack the passage today, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, my hope and prayer is that as we talk today about the serving life, that God would open our eyes to see those who are broken. He would give us the legs to walk to those who are in need. He would give us the hands to extend a glass of water or a piece of food to those who are hungry or thirsty. He would give us the arms to embrace those who are broken. And he would give us the ability to be the body of Christ who can touch people who are the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor, and touch people who feel like they are untouchable with the love of God. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service this morning, whether that's live in person, live online, or watching or listening throughout the week. God, I pray that as we dive into your word, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. May I decrease, may you increase, and Lord, may we receive what it is that you have for us today, whether that's an encouragement, whether that's a challenge, whether it's both and or something else completely. Lord, may we have the open eyes, ears, and hearts to receive what you have for us today. Lord, we thank you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What I want to start off with as we get to Matthew 25, 31 through 46, is I want to give us the context of where we're going or where we've been in Jesus's, in the gospel of Matthew at this point. Not, not all of it, but what's happening right now. Because here's where we're at, is that in Matthew 24... There's the signs of the end of the age that the disciples are asking, so how do we know when the end will come? What will be some of the signs that we're going to see? And so this is when you hear Jesus talk about there will be wars, there'll be rumors of wars, there'll be earthquakes, there'll be all these different things. And he starts unpacking and sharing. You're going to start seeing these signs that show you that the end is coming. And then what he does, like as a preacher, there'll be times when I'm like, okay, I want to share a point with someone, right? As we share in a sermon. And then I'm going to give an illustration or two to, to kind of give an example of what this looks like. And then you want to summarize it. You want to give like your summary point to close that idea. So here's what Jesus does. He talks about through Matthew 24, he gives the signs of the end of the age. And it ends with this idea of how 
We need to be ready and prepared because we don't know when the Son of Man, when Jesus is coming back. And so it talks about, you know, if, this, if there was a strong man who was going to come into the house and someone knew that they were going to, like, break in at a certain time, that they'd be ready for him. They'd be prepared for him. You know, if all of us just had, like, a calendar notification that said, at 2.03 a.m. we're going to be broken into, we would be ready for that moment, and we would be, know how to navigate that. So here's what he says, that we don't know when the Son of Man, when Jesus as the Messiah is coming back, but he's, his point is, you could start to see the signs, but we ought to live in such a way that were he to come like a thief in the night, we'd be ready. That's his point. Matthew 25, the first section of it is the parable of the ten virgins. And in this parable, he talks about how there will be, you know, he gives the example that the kingdom of God will be like when there are ten virgins ready to celebrate when the bridegroom is coming for the procession through the city. Five of them will be prepared and have enough oil. Five of them won't. And the five that won't will say, okay, well, we need to go, go get oil. And while they are away, the bridegroom comes. They enter into the celebration. The doors are closed. And the five who are on the outside like, let us in. And they're left out. The five who were ready are celebrating with the groom. Why? Because it's about being prepared to live in such a way that whenever the time comes, you are ready. The next one is we see the parable of the talents, which I'm only going to briefly touch on this morning because we're going to discuss it more in depth in two weeks. But in the parable of the talents, the idea is that a master gives responsibility and he gives bags of gold to different servants of his. And he doesn't say when he's coming back. But instead, it's just knowing that here, here's five bags of gold. Here's two bags of gold. Here's one bag of gold. And then when the master shows up, he sees who lived in such a way that was prepared for the return. So he's saying, listen, there's going to be signs at the end of the age. You ought to be ready for that. How are we ready? Well, we're ready by how we live here and now, not knowing when the time will come. All this context leads us to our passage today, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. And here's why. Because in the first couple sections of Matthew, the parable, or Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents, it is very clear that Jesus is saying this is, the kingdom of God is like. It's very clear that he's giving an illustration or a parable in order to explain his point. But verses 31 through 46 are the summary of his point. This is no longer a parable that is an illustration to point to something. This is saying, here's what's going to happen. And I want you to be prepared because whenever I come back, I want you to be ready. I don't want you to be left out like the parable of the, f the five virgins who didn't have enough oil. I don't want you to be like the man who only has one talent who doesn't put it to work. I want you to be ready for whenever I come back. And here's where we pick up because the main point we're going to hit on today is this idea that we, all of us, will be held accountable for how well we serve. We will be held accountable for it. We will have a moment where we are before Jesus and we'll need to give an account to how we handled the blessings that we received, financial, um, spiritual gifts, talents, um, time that we have. How did we do that? That serving the poor, friends, is not an optional thing for Christ followers. It is something you and I that we are called to do. And so here's what we're going to look at here, starting in verse 31. Now, to be clear, not every verse we're going to go through today, because it's a bigger passage, not every one will be on the screen. So if you want to follow along, 
Agon, doesn't even make sense. If you want to follow along with us, we'll be in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Some will be on the screen, some won't. But here's how we start off. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. There's a couple of things here. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, the Son of Man is a term that was used in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Daniel and Ezekiel, that talk about the, the, the Messiah, the Son of Man, that shows this great authority. In the book of Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, the Son of Man is the term that Jesus most often uses to refer to himself, that the Son of Man would come. Now, the Son of Man comes in all his glory. We only get a glimpse of the glory of Christ when we see the story of transfiguration in Matthew 17 and how he was just radiated light, but we don't, we don't get a full picture of it. But he's going to come in all his glory, and he's going to sit on this glorious throne. All the nations, every single person. Now, this is not nations collectively. It's not like saying, okay, everyone from America will be here, and everyone from Canada will be here, and everyone from Mexico will be here, and Guam will be somewhere out that way. No, it's one of those where it's acknowledging that it's all of the people groups, every tribe, nation, tongue, everybody will come and will see Christ in his full glory. All of us will recognize that who he is, that he is who he's always said he was. We will all be sitting there and we will be shoulder to shoulder with people and we will be gathered there, but we will be held accountable. Why? Some will be separated, the sheep on his right hand, on his right side, and the goats on his left. When you read the Old Testament specifically in the first few books in Genesis, you talk about, you see how the, 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 those on the right hand of someone is, are the blessed ones. That when the patriarchs would bless their kids, they would extend their hand and that would be put on the right-hand side. And so in Ezekiel 34, it talks about how they would split. A shepherd would normally split up the sheep from the goats just as a normal shepherding practice. Part of that was because the sheep needed to stay in a pen so they wouldn't wander off. And so the sheep and the goats would be separated. So this is a, this is a, common, um, this is a common shepherding tactic, but... Why is it that they're going to be separated? What does it look like? It's because we are all going to be held accountable for how well we serve. So if that's the basis of our conversation today. What we're going to do is spend the next uh, several minutes that we have together to unpack and ask a few questions and, and look at a few ideas. If we're going to be held accountable for how well we serve, we want to look at how we serve, who we serve, why we serve, and where we serve. And we're going to unpack that together over the next few moments. So let's start off with how we serve. What does it look like? And what does our service uh, that we are called to give, how does that look? Verse 34 is not on the screen, but verse 35 will be. So verse 34 says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. When we look at this passage, notice the verbs that are being uh, utilized here. We start to see something about generosity in the sense of giving, of giving of material possessions. You gave me something to eat. You gave me something to drink and you clothed me. 
So there is a side to that. When we are blessed, when we are serving, it can come out of our material blessings or our material ways to be able to give to help meet physical needs of those who are the poorest of the poor, the lowest of the low, and the untouchables who need to be touched by the love of God. There can be a physical idea, but the physical blessing is not the only kind of blessing, and the physical way of serving is not the only way of serving he discusses here. Let's, let's look at it together. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. If these three, you gave, you gave, and you clothed, have to do with physical blessings or physical ways of serving. Being invited, looked after, And coming to visit, these are relational ways of coming alongside someone. It's spending time with people. It's going to visit someone who's hurting. And as a pastor, there are times when I go and I visit people, and I know, or I shouldn't say I know, I feel a burden to be able to have the right answers whenever there's questions. I feel the burden of thinking, okay, I need to know the right thing to say. I need to know not to say the dumb thing like right away. You know, like I just need to be aware of it. Like you don't go in to... Um, a, a pastoral visit, like, hey, how's it going? And you're like, well, I, you wouldn't be here if things were great, right? So it's just acknowledging that there are ways to walk into these circumstances and you feel a little bit, I feel, maybe not ever, I feel a little anxiety, nervousness, so wanting to make sure I handle it well. You know what I learn when I visit people? They often don't really care about what you're saying. They're really glad you're there, that you're spending time with them. And of course, you, could, you want to be cautious how you interact, but it's not like a, oh man, you didn't give me you know, a three-point sermon, which of course, no one wants me to do that at their own home, right? You get that enough here. But recognizing that it's just this idea, they're not looking for the right words, they're looking for someone to spend time with them. You might say, how am I going to go visit a friend who's in the hospital? I don't know what to say. Join the club. But know that we have the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to know when to speak and when to be silent and what words to encourage people with and how to come alongside them. See, we are called to give both physically, but also of our time, also of our talents, also of our ability and our heart to live a generous life by serving people, not just meeting their physical needs. But is the physical, are the physical needs important? Of course. James 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verses 14 through 17 say it this way. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. So we start to wrestle with this idea that, you know, we could say, oh, I believe in Jesus. You know what James says about that earlier in his, in his letter? He says, you believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Belief that Jesus is God is not the only thing. We need to surrender our lives to him. To recognize our own brokenness. And the fact that we are far from God outside of a relationship with Jesus. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And I know that sounds like it's, it's mean or it's harsh, but it's just true. If I were to say that there are 17 ways to get into this room, you'd be like, well, there's that one, and then there's that one. I'm not giving you a benefit by not being truthful to you. But I'm saying, hey, the way that you get in as you walk through those doors, that's something you could tell the truth, you could speak the truth in love. 
Because there's only one way. If there were multiple ways for us to come into relationship with God other than Jesus having to lay down his perfect life and dying a horrible death in order to being raised to eternal life so that we may have eternal life, if, that, if there's other ways, then, man, it makes God look really, really mean for putting Jesus through that for nothing. But he puts Jesus through that because it's the only way, the only truth, and Jesus is the only way to life. So we need to serve people physically. We need to serve them relationally. And our faith ought to be something that because we believe it, it manifests itself so clearly in how we go about our daily lives. It must be so clear in our deeds and our actions that people say something's different about you. And they may not put a finger on it. They may never ask you about it, but they would see it and acknowledge it. See, we are called, if we were to say, hey, there's a point Jesus says, there's a point. Here's some illustrations. Here's a summary point. Here's my summary point here. We're called to serve by caring for physical, relational, and spiritual needs. To the least of these, the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor, those who may be considered untouchable by society, but they need the touch of God. We are called to serve, to do that and to spend time with people and to serve them. That's how we serve. But let's look at who we serve. It's not just how. It's who. What does it look like and how do we go about that? Starting in verse 37. It's not on the screen yet, but here we go. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in person and go to visit you? See, I love this idea because they were just doing it so naturally. They were prepared and they didn't even know that it was going to come. Have you ever had a time where you didn't know a pop quiz was coming, but you were just ready for it and you just felt good? I always love whenever it happens, not always, but whenever I pass a test I didn't know I was taking. When someone asks a question or navigates something, oh, no, I passed. Why? Because it's part of who you are. It's not a special thing you do that you say, oh, I want to be able to go on stage in 17 years, so I'm going to go on a one-month trip to India in 2005 so that I could say I did a good thing one time. The last thing I want us to look at is for you or for anyone who's part of this, this message today to think, well, when serving means you have to be a pastor or someone who's like a missionary professional Christian, quote unquote, someone who will be able to have the ability to go very far away to serve, someone who is going to be doing something really big that we can all look to and that we could stay in our seats and not have to live a serving life. But friends, all of us must recognize and acknowledge that all of us are called to serve, that we are made in an image of a giver God who gives us much. And through Jesus, we see that we have a God who is a servant, a server. That we ought to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. If we follow Christ, then we're following the image and we're following the example of a servant. And so we get to do this together. So they didn't even know the test was coming, and they passed it anyway, and I love that. So when did we do all this? And then verse 40, the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Whatever you did for the least of these, the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor, the ones who are so untouchable according to society that they need to be touched by the love of God. 
Now, one of the things I was looking at in my commentaries that I was studying this week is the acknowledgement here that this verbiage of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine was something that um, was just interesting to unpack a little bit because usually whenever the terminology brothers or sisters is utilized within the Greek, it's usually specifically referring to brothers and sisters in the faith. It's, it's talking about other believers, other people who have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. So some of the commentators that I'm looking up are painting the picture that all of us, at some future point in history, this is not a parable, this is a, something that will happen all of us will see the Son of Man in his full glory, on his glorious throne. We're going to be sitting amongst all the people of all the nations of all the world throughout all of time. And it's going to be looking at how did you treat those who loved me? How did you treat those who were Christians who were poor? Didn't have something to eat, something to drink, clothes to wear. Did you visit those who were wrongly imprisoned because of their faith? Did you visit those who were sick? Did you invite them in? Now, if it's true that we are called to love those and serve those who already know Jesus, how much more do we see by his example that we are called to love and serve and give to those who are even beyond his family? That we recognize the story of the Old Testament is that God had a chosen people through whom he, or through whom he wanted to bless the Gentiles and bless the nations. Yes, we want to care for Christians but we're also called to love those who are far from God, to serve those who are far from God, and to recognize that we will be held accountable for how well we serve. Serving is not a nice option. It is not the 10th thing on our to-do list. It is not something that we do so we could get brownie points or get credit with God. It ought to be who we are to the point that it's what we do to the point where we pass a test we didn't know we were taking. Summary point for this passage of, of who we serve is this. We're called to serve those who cannot reciprocate, to remind us that we cannot reciprocate how Jesus served us. So why do we serve the least of these? Well, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about how if you serve only your friends, if you only care about your friends, well then, you know, what good is that for you? Like, that's not all that you're called to do. Luke chapter 14 talks about, Jesus says, if you only invite those to a banquet that, are, that can reciprocate and can invite you back to their house to have a banquet, then, that, uh, then you're missing out on what's happening here, that you will be able to, you'll, you won't get, you'll get paid twice rather than being able to experience the ultimate blessing. That you'll be able to be something in which you invite people and you reciprocate, or excuse me, invite people who cannot reciprocate. Why? Because there's nothing you or I can do. There's no amount of service or good deeds that we can put before God the Father and say, was this equal to Jesus' sacrifice? Did I do enough so that, so that it was worth what Jesus did for me? When we acknowledge our own brokenness and neediness and reliance upon Christ, then it allows for us to recognize that we then can minister to those who, have been, who are broken and needy and need to rely on him as well, not out of our power, but out of his. Not out of our own goodness, but out of his. Not out of anything we can do, but out of what Jesus has already done. And then it becomes an overflow. Like we looked at last week when we poured the water, it was an overflow rather than us trying to well up good deeds within ourselves. 
So we reciprocate. Why? Jesus says, what you did, at least these you did to me. Notice that the, the king, the son of man, the Messiah, the one true God, fully God, fully flesh, he relates himself not to the one in power, but to the one in need. When you and I look into the eyes of someone who is in need, whether it's physically, relationally, spiritually, we're able to serve and love that person as if we're loving Christ because Christ is, that's how Christ loves us. We've looked at how we serve. Personal, spend time with people. Yes, finances, but not just so. Relationally as well. We looked at who we serve. We serve the least of these, those who can't reciprocate because it reminds us that we can never reciprocate all that Jesus has done to serve and to love us. Why do we serve? Because if you read this passage in a certain way without diving in a little bit deeper, we may get a misunderstanding of why we ought to serve. So let's unpack it together as I read uh, starting in verse 41, and then we'll read it, and then verse 46 will be the one on the screen in a few moments. Verse 41 says this, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into, this eternal, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also answered, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. In verse 6, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. See, there, this section, um, this passage is convicting, and it's, it can be a little scary. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus says, there will be many of you on that day who will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things for you? We cast out demons, we prayed, we healed, we went on missions trips, we gave, whatever it is. They say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this for you? And what does Jesus say in response? He says, away from me, depart from me, evildoer. I never knew you. See, some of us, some of us, we might think, well, because we know and love God, as we saw in the James 2 passage, because we have a relationship with Jesus, we don't need to do actions. We don't need to prove it by our faith because it's only what we believe. But belief and deeds, faith and works, these are like two sides of a railway. You can't have just one. They're like two oars in a boat. You can't use just one. But faith is what out of our faith is where the deeds come from. We cannot earn our salvation through our good deeds. And this is what Warren Wearsby says, and this is why I want to highlight why we serve is not to get into heaven. Warren Wearsby says it this way. We must not force this passage to teach salvation by good works. A superficial reading would give the impression that helping one's neighbor is sufficient to earn salvation and go to heaven. But this is not the message of this passage. Nobody at any time in the history of the world was ever saved by good works. So where, here's the tension, okay? The tension comes because, okay, well, we're reading, we have to serve. And if we don't serve people, then we're going to be on the people on the left and the people on the right. I'm going to be a goat, not a sheep. So we have to serve. But if we are serving so that we can be saved, then we're missing the point completely of the power of the gospel, 
That the power of the gospel is that we are worse sinners than we could ever imagine, but we are more loved than we can ever hope for. That's a, that's a Timothy Keller paraphrasing, because I can't say it as eloquently as he did. But it's this idea of saying it's, we are worse than we thought, and God loves us more than we could hope for. So here's what happens. Some of us might think, well, I, I love Jesus. And I'm, you know, I'm, I love Jesus, but I don't have time to serve. I don't see where I can serve in my community. I don't understand. Like, there's a lot going on. And that can be valid. But when we are sitting in front of the glorious throne of Jesus Christ, he's not going to say, well, how busy were you? Oh, okay, then you didn't worry about serving. He's going to say, did you feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty? Did you clothe the naked? Did you visit the poor, visit those in prison, and welcome in a stranger? Why? Because in the same way that we can't just believe without actions, we can't, have a, uh, we can't be saved purely by our actions. When I went to Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity, there were people that were like us on short-term trips. There were others who moved and decided, this is where I'm going to live. And I remember one gentleman who was from Canada, and he, he went there and he served, but he very specifically declared that he didn't have a relationship with Jesus. He was just doing good things. Is it okay for people who don't know Jesus to do good things? Yes. Wouldn't it be amazing? How much different would this world would be if all of us just decided to do good things for and to one another? It would be incredible. Can any amount of good things make us right before God? No. You can give the best resume there ever was to Jesus and say, I did all these things. And if we don't have a relationship with him, do you know what he'll say to you? Away from me, depart from me, evildoer. I never knew you. These passages are scary. They're convicting. They're challenging. Because they work directly in opposition to what we, how we live within our culture. Where we think we could do enough to move up in our culture, to move up and to be thought well of. We could do enough to earn the right to be able to be saved or to earn the right to get plaudits. And yes, hard work's important, but hard work never saves us. None of us are righteous, no, not one, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death, but the grace of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, that all of our own righteousness are as filthy rags, that none of us can earn enough and do enough and serve enough to be able to come before Jesus because what he did for us on the cross is already enough. Summary point says it this way. We're not saved because we serve. We, are, we serve because we are saved. We recognize how much Jesus has done for us. We cannot help but overflow to recognize we couldn't earn anything. We couldn't deserve what he's given us. And so how, why would we be the ones to hoard it and hold on to it? Ought not we be the ones to pass it on and to invite other people to understand who he is? How we serve, who we serve, why we serve. And this is the last one. It's not in the scripture, but this is what we're going to close with today. Where we serve. Where we serve. Because again, the last thing I would want is for you to think, okay, well, what I need to do, the only way that I can serve in the way that we heard about today is to go on a mission trip across the world. Might God be calling you to that? Absolutely. But might God be calling you to have the eyes to see those around you right now 
who are the poorest of the poor, the lowest of the low, the least of these, and those who are so untouchable according to society that they just need the touch, the loving touch of God. Is it possible that God put you in your classroom, you in your workplace, you in your neighborhood, you in Poway, California, or the surrounding areas in order to minister to people that only you can minister to? Is it possible that the people in your life may never walk foot through these doors, but will you pass the test you don't even know you're taking by loving them as Jesus loves them, serving them as Jesus served, and giving to them what Jesus has given to us? I mentioned Mother Teresa. There was an interview that happened um, when she became a saint. And there's a woman, a sister named Sister Mary Jonas. And there's a picture of her here. Sister Mary Jonas was someone that was, um, that she was a sister and she was in uh, a meeting. This was years and years ago now. But um, as she was in a meeting, the person said with other sisters and other clergy, um, there's going to be a special guest today. And the special guest walks in all, you know, five foot nothing, all four foot of Mother Teresa. And she's blown away. She asks, she says, you know, Mother Teresa, like, I want to go. And if you tell me, like, I'm willing to go to Calcutta. I'm willing to serve wherever it is that you, you know, if you say come to Calcutta, I want to experience what you've done. And I want to be a part of that. And here's how Mother Teresa responded to her. And this is a quote that many of you may have heard before in Mother Teresa's writing. She says this, she, this is Mother Teresa, said to me, no, I want you to go back to your neighborhood, find the poor, Find your own Calcutta. It's not about going across the world to find a special place where the poor are. It's about going across the street, across the workplace, across your campus at school, or even across the couch to someone else in your home to recognize that there are people who are poor and hurting right now. Find your own Calcutta. And here's what it looks like. Mother, uh, Sister Mary Jonas ends up being a, a sister in um, East Buffalo in New York, and then helps found and create this area in which, or this organization that cares for those who are hurting, not in Calcutta, where there's 15 million people, but in Buffalo, New York, where there's still a lot of people who are broken and needy. Serving is not about going there to find especially poor. It's about opening our eyes here to see that we are all poor and needed, or in need whether it's physically, whether it's relationally, whether it's spiritually. What are some of the organizations, maybe if you have locally, that we serve with and we come alongside? On our website, we have um, some ministries that are part of our local community impact that we interact with. And so here's a few of them here that we have. There's Community Food Connection, which helps feed hundreds and up to a thousand families every week in Poway. That's just, you know, 10 minutes down the road from here. Maybe you look at Life Choices. I had the opportunity that September 18th, they had an open house. And after service, I went over there and I was able to see some of the stories. They would have pictures of it's a Life Choices Crisis Pregnancy Center. And we would see pictures of kids who their moms were going in because they wanted to look into getting an abortion. And yet they found a crisis pregnancy center that came alongside them. And then there's pictures of these kids and it says, you know, it'll share their stories. And then it'll say, and now... This child, this girl is going off to college. Now they're in first grade. Now they're doing real. And it's this idea of honoring the people who, are, people who are broken and are about to make that decision and saying, listen, there's value in you and there's value in human life. And so finding ways to come alongside. 
Maybe it's Ladle Fellowship where four times a month, excuse me, four times a month, four times a year, we go down to downtown San Diego and you can help serve and give food to those who are hungry and give drink to those who are thirsty. Our next one's coming up December 11th. And so you can sign up. It's in the back over there and we'll have some sign up information online. But here's the thing, your Calcutta is Poway, San Diego or wherever you are. And there are opportunities in which to serve. Maybe it's quarterly, maybe it's weekly, Maybe it's whenever you have time to pour into people. So you may find a place where God may say, this is what I'm calling you to do. And we don't say, okay, well, these are all cool options, but God, I'm only going to wait until I could go somewhere far away. Because he says there's needy, broken, lowest of the low, poorest of the poor, least of these, those untouchable in the eyes of the world that need the loving touch of God right here. So as Mother Teresa has been the bookend and then also kind of a, a through line, a plumb line through much of our sermon today, I want to remind us, we will be held accountable for how well we serve. This is not a parable. This is not an illustration of a point. This is a true summary statement that Jesus shows us through Matthew 24 and 25. And Mother Teresa has this quotation that sums up where we're at. She says this, at the end of life, we will not be judged by how many diplomas we've received how much money we've made, how many great things we have done. If, my, if I may extrapolate that to our season now, how involved our kids are in activities, how busy we are, how much our 401k looks like, where we live. We're not going to be judged by any of that. We will be judged by, quote, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was naked and you clothed me. I was homeless and you took me in. Not because our works can save us, but because what Jesus and his saving work within us causes us to want to overflow and to bless and to serve those around us. So as we close this morning, I had a, the last picture I want to show you from Calcutta was a sign that was in the Mother Teresa homes where we'd go and we would have uh, devotions early in the morning. We'd have these little plantains that would eat and drop chai tea before we would go off to our various homes. And in there was a sign that just said, let us do something beautiful for God. Friends, I don't know what God is calling you to do. But let us do something that is beautiful, that uplifts people, that shows people how much God loves them. That even though they may feel untouchable according to the world, the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor, the least of these and those who feel most untouchable need the touch of our loving God. May we be the hands, may we be the feet, may we be the eyes, and may we have the heart to be the body of Christ who serves those who can't reciprocate, who meets those who are broken, who does something beautiful for God because we recognize how much we've been blessed and we want to pour that on to others. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service this morning. And Lord, I pray that God... Um, Whatever you want to take place and whatever it is that you are working, maybe you are inspiring people right now with a name of someone who's hurting or with a ministry that you'd like, to get involved, that you'd like them to get involved in. Maybe you're someone who they could see a face of someone in their home, in their classroom, in their workplace, in their neighborhood, or wherever it is that they may be, Lord, that needs your love. God, we thank you that our works can't save us because it means we have to be fully reliant on you. And we pray for forgiveness for the times that we may think that we are okay just to believe in you and not to do anything about it. 
But Lord, may we recognize that we know we're held accountable for how we serve. So may we serve and give and love in such a way that it pleases you. And that people would look to us and say, they're like little Christs who loved and served and gave beyond himself for us. So Jesus, we thank you for this time and for who you are. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember, we're prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.